Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. Joining us today is GC alumna Dr. Allison Guess, an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation postdoctoral fellow and a professor of Africana Studies at Williams College. Guess is also a research fellow at the CUNY Dominican Studies Institute. She earned a PhD in Earth and Environmental Sciences at the Graduate Center. Ramona Hernandez is the director of the CUNY Dominican Studies Institute and a professor of sociology at City College and at the CUNY Graduate Center. Her research interests include the mobility of workers from Latin America and the Caribbean, the socioeconomic conditions of Dominicans in the United States, and the restructuring of the world economy and its effects on working-class people. Under her leadership, the CUNY Dominican Institute is home to a research unit, Dominican Library, and Dominican Archives, has distinguished itself as a world-class institute of research known for its groundbreaking scholarship on the history of the Dominican people in the United States and elsewhere. In 2021, in the continuation of the Institute's research on the first Blacks in the Americas and in commemoration of the first rebellion of enslaved Black Americans in the Americas, the CUNY Institute undertook the first archaeological survey in the Dominican Republic, locating the site of the sugar mill where this slave rebellion took place 500 years ago. The story Guess and Hernandez discuss in this podcast is the earliest history of Black people in the Americas and their scholarship and research that documents this history. They discuss the events that took place during the Christmas holiday of 1521 on the island of Hispaniola, the Dominican Republic and Republic of Haiti contemporarily. In the United States, Christmas festivities dominate the culture during December. A good number of public media and writing this time of year highlights Christmas as a holiday to be enjoyed. None, however, highlights Christmas as oppositional Black history, which includes lessons on what freedom and democracy look like then and how it appears today. They address this gap, bringing into bear a short and informative story about long history of Black resistance during Christmas time, dating back to the Santo Domingo Revolt of 16th century Hispaniola, also known as the Christmas Rebellion. Its 500th year anniversary was commemorated last year in a national conference at CUNY led by Professor Hernandez. They also discussed the anti-Black slave laws that corresponded to this early rebellion written by Diego Colon, Christopher Columbus's very own son, which also just had a quincentennial observation on January 6, 2022. As these early slave laws 
relate to other laws throughout the history of the United States that have limited Black people's freedom, including the Black codes of the U.S. South and more contemporary practices such as stop and frisk and broken windows policing in New York City as an example. It is important to highlight this history, its tortured legacies of the first slave rebellion. Welcome to The Thought Project, Allison Guest and Ramona Hernandez. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Uh, The earliest history of Black people in the Americas is one of enslavement and resistance. Ground zero for this history of slave resistance begins in 1521 during the Christmas holiday on the island of Espanola, present-day Dominican Republic and the Republic of Haiti. You have co-authored an essay about the 500th anniversary of the Christmas Slave Rebellion in Hispaniola, published on the Thought Project Medium page. What can you tell us about this uprising? Can I start with you, Allison? Sure, absolutely. Well, the earliest history of Black people in the Americas is certainly one of rebellion and resistance. But I should also say that all Black people in the period were not enslaved themselves. So the earliest group of Black people of African descent to come into the Americas were a mixed band of unfree and enslaved laborers. This group, which is referred to in late 15th and 16th century documents that pertain to La Española, um, were referred to as Latinos, or in some cases, Latinos Negros. So the earliest Black population to end up in La Española actually came from Iberia. Uh, these Black people were literate. They were very well versed in the languages spoken in Iberia, such as Spanish, Portuguese, and perhaps even Italian. Um, and they were likely Christianized, or at the very least, they at least purported to be Christian. We must remember that For the several centuries, Spain actually was also controlled in some ways by people who were, you know, described as the Moors. And so this would also mean that in the Iberian Peninsula, there was a Black population as well as people from various religious and various other ethnic backgrounds um, 800 years before, you know, we're even getting into the place that would eventually become the Americas. So I think it's quite early in the alleged conquests um, of what would become the Americas of people of African descent, you know, living in Iberia, were identified by Imperial Spain as, you know, kind of a sort of uh, convenient labor force that could be used in the extraction of the land of La Española. And I often refer to these early Black ancestors as unfree because it's not exactly accurate to think of these people as necessarily free. And I think also there's need for an understanding of their subject position that goes beyond the free and enslaved binary. So I refer to these ancestors in my work as unfree, unless they are explicitly stated as being enslaved. And I think oftentimes when we think about the narrative surrounding Black people in this time, it limits and regards Black subjectivity to conquistadors and settlers and slaves and even in some instances kings. These figures are almost always stories about adult Black men in this early period, but we hardly ever hear about Black revolutionaries and liberators in this early period. So I think that's quite odd, and I think that's something to think about critically in terms of early modern historiographies that center Black peoples. To go back to your question, 
I'd also like to say that La Española more broadly is a fertile ground, or as you say, the ground zero for Black resistance in the Americas. But this resistance didn't actually inaugurate with the 1521 Christmas Rebellion. In my work, I simply like to think of the 1521 Rebellion as the climax of a longer and larger liberation struggle carried out by Black people on the island. We know that as early as 1503, a correspondence existed um, with a complaint of Black-led marinage on the island that quite possibly responded to the initial correspondence, which may have been written in 1502. And I think that that came from Governor Nicolas de Ovando, and so we know very little about that time period. But I think to go even further back, we know that even before 1503, there was rebel activity in 1493 at the Navidad settlement, which was burned to the ground. This was actually the earliest settlement of Spaniards or Europeans, I should say, more broadly, on La Española. And when they returned back, they found the settlement burned down. This is often regarded as um, an act of resistance carried out by the people indigenous to La Española, known as the Tainos. But there is some research that suggests that the remains of some of the people that were found near that settlement might have been from people of African descent. So I think it's important to think about these blended histories. I think it's important to think about um, rebellion not as a singular event, but a long and enduring process, just as dispossession and conquest is also a process. Thank you. Dr. Hernandez, um, you have made a considerable focus in your career on the Dominican Republic and its history, and you actually advanced an archeological project to document this rebellion. What are your thoughts about this anniversary and about just the context of what actually transpired there? And certainly I'm not diminishing a hundred years before But for the purpose of this podcast, and I appreciate all the clarifications, this seems to be a significant event nonetheless. I know that the world did not start there, but certainly your your contribution, Dr. Hernandez. So it's important for us to actually document as much as possible and bring so much uh, flesh to the history of the uh, rebellion of 1521, precisely because you know when people think about uh, Black African people in the New World enslaved, that system, we often think of the uh, 19th century as the, the time when this happened. And to us, it was important for people to know that that history of, of birth organized a clear uh, manifestation uh, against a, a system of oppression happened much earlier. This time is 1521. So it was important to document this, right? The second thing for us that was important is to try to reconstruct the, the site of where this rebellion took place as much as possible. Because this is an event that hasn't been studied enough actually uh, very little. And whatever study has been done uh, about this event had happened outside of the U.S. So it was not only a conversation among us that we needed to do more of this, but it's also a conversation with the U.S. 
right, where we have over 50 million people of um, uh, Hispanic ancestry and, and, and all these this kinds, of, kinds of things. So the archaeological site, we still do not know uh, with precision where this uh, historical event happened. That is so important to us because it is, yes, Allenson is quite correct. There has been resistances. This is what we say. Since the first day they were brought in with their hands on the back, high, since that moment, we know that there was resistance in that place. So this is the, uh, the one that we, we have evidence uh, as, as of this, this moment. So we don't know whether it was in, uh, in the immediacy of, of Rio Ligua or it was a little bit further where uh, this rebellion uh, happened. So for us to find the exact site, it's important because it will give much more, you know, the historicity that is needed for people to remember this thing. It will come to, to substantiate that. This is why it was important for us to accompany this 500-year anniversary with the beginning of the archaeological work that, that we are going to continue to do. Because we, we went there, we found what we think is the site now. It's interesting because immediately there was a reaction by historians in the Dominican Republic who are saying, no, they're speaking to the place that they think uh, where this um, event happened in a few miles uh, away from, from, from the original site. So this, this work that just begun and that we need to make sure that we conclude this by finding the place where it happened. And I think that this is possible now with a, with a kind of uh, technology and the kind of knowledge and the kind of multidisciplinary uh, team academics that we have in place. I think it's possible to determine the exact place. Really remarkable historical facts that you have presented, both of you, your, your work together, the archaeological potential findings of artifacts, these sort of things. It's, it's a remarkable story, one that I personally never read about. I'll be totally honest with you. I actually have worked in Haiti in 1995. I was there when Aristide was returned to the country. I've um, experienced, made had a, it had such a significant impression on me that it will never leave me. But your historical findings and your scholarship is very significant. And I just want to say that the other thing that really struck me about your um, findings is that the rebellion there that took place in 1521 actually planted seeds for maybe larger rebellions or further uh, rebellions that are really part of a Christmas narrative for Black people that's actually devoid in the culture of the United States. And some of these rebellions include Jamaica's Christmas Day Rebellion, also known as the Baptist War in 1831 to 1832. And I was also struck by the mention of Harriet Tubman-led resistance on Christmas Day. Can you elaborate on that, Allison? Sure. Well, we might say that um, unfree people of African descent strategically use the holiday season to liberate themselves. So I think if we're talking about the 16th century, we have to acknowledge that 
in this time period, Christmas was not just Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It wasn't just a two-day affair, but it, it actually lasted quite longer in the Catholic religion um, in that time period. So, you know, Christmas militancy is something that is kind of talked about amongst people of African descent as a time in which many people would often plan their liberation. We know in the case of Harriet Tubman that she would often go back and forth during Christmas time because it was just thought that in this time period, the oppressors would be more busy attending to their festivities. So the 1521 rebellion, you know, I see it as a time that kind of inaugurates that longer tradition of Black militancy during the Christmas holiday. I think that we can also link this to more contemporary efforts that have kind of looked at Christmas as a time in which consumption and accumulation is rampant. And to think that with consumption and accumulation, that therefore there must also be extraction. I think if we think about what must have been the position of those who were deemed as the Black laborers, then we can see clearly not only was it advantageous to you know, plan your escape and your liberation during a time in which people would have been busy looking elsewhere, but it might have also been a time in which you know, the extraction of your labor would have been perhaps even at its height in the beginning of the Christmas holiday or leading up to it so that people could take that time to supposedly rest. So yeah, the Baptiste War in Jamaica is another example. Yeah, Hercules Posey, he also allegedly started it at the very least to plan his escape during the Christmas holiday. So yeah, I think that this is something to think more generously about and contextualize it within the history of La Española. Of course, it also makes sense because this is a moment which Spaniards are concentrated, extremely focused on uh, communicating with the God of all, right? And I think it shows how the enslaved population was watching and trying to find the, the, the right moment, a moment in which they knew the eyes were not that focused on them because the eyes and the mind and everything was focused on the God of all people. You know, when we go back and we ask about the importance of remembering and bringing the history of 1521 back to the table, you know, one of the things that I share with the students is that for some reason, there are people who like to insist that Black people, that some of us liked it, you know, the business of enslaved. You know, we, we didn't do much because we, we had a history of that. This is some of this, uh, the, the narrative that are put on the table to justify a slavery and enslaving human beings. And what this event shows is that in all of the other uh, accounts that Alison uh, spoke about before, is that that wasn't the case, at least not those who came to La Española. The very first day they came in, the very first day that they began to persist and say, this is not right. I oppose this thing. So, uh, and that that helps to uh, undermine that narrative that, you know, slavery lasted all that long and all that kind of thing because somehow we were participating and we liked it, right? Very remarkable. I'm, I really hope this podcast advances knowledge and awareness. And secondly, not only is, is this very chilling in my view, but Christopher Columbus's son, Diego Colon, 
played a nefarious role in the subjectivity of these slaves, ultimately creating a judicial infrastructure for uh, subsequent and consequent anti-Black laws and practices, much later on called Black Codes, commonly referred to as Black Laws in the U.S. South of 1865 and later Jim Crow Laws, which followed the post-antebellum reconstruction in 1877. I find this really chilling. You draw an analogy into present day, including stop and frisk and broken windows. Um, Many of our colleagues at the Graduate Center have really documented quite a bit on these uh, practices of the NYPD. And I found this one of the most disturbing findings but yet very important. And my only awareness is because of my work on the Holocaust is that the Nazis really followed the Jim Crow laws and found them quite useful in their mass killing of Jews in Europe. Allison, please elaborate here. Yeah, um, Christopher Columbus's son, Diego Colon, was actually the author of the 1522 laws, which are known as La Ordenanzas de los Negros, And it was a decree that directly responded to the 1521 rebellion. So as you all know, the 1521 rebellion happens during Christmas time. And then on January 6th, these laws emerge. And they are the earliest known set of documented anti-Black slave laws in the Americas. So in addition to Diego Colon, you know, him writing these laws, but he was actually also the master of the enslaved rebels who rebelled. And I should clarify that not all the rebels who were involved in this rebellion were enslaved, but there was a subset that were absolutely enslaved and they came from Diego Colon's sugar plantation. So this is why kind of like what Dr. Hernandez was saying earlier, it's really important, you know, for us to kind of locate where this rebellion took place, where was the initial starting place. And that's something that is still, you know, to be determined. So I think it's very interesting that we think about this response as a Black response to the Cologne family directly and also the establishment of slavery in the Americas, conquest, colonialism, and I would also add capitalist extraction. We often think that capitalism wasn't in operation in this time period, but you can kind of see through the archival document that it was full and well, as a full running operation. One thing that I often like to think about is um, a work by Tiffany King, and she writes about how in 2015, there was a statue of Christopher Columbus in Boston's um, Christopher Columbus Park that was defaced, and it was smeared with red paint, and then the words Black Lives Matter were written at the base of the statue. And so King kind of interrogates, you know, what we can think of as a surprise of Black people's critique of Columbus. And she thinks about it as an unthought Black discourse of conquest. But I think that the Black-led 1521 Christmas Rebellion elongates that Black critique of the Columbus and the Columbus family as an earlier 16th century Black discourse on conquest. So in my work, I actually zero in on this event. And I also focus on an earlier Black anti-Cologne event and sentiment that emerges in the archive. So I think it's really important that we think about the relationship that Black people have with the Colognes and and the Cologne family more broadly, and to think not only about how this decree in 1522 is really foundational to it, but also 
just really highlights a longer tradition of Black people and their critique of Cologne. And if I may add, please, uh, please, to what you're saying, uh, said in terms of the importance of, of where this uh, rebellion took place, the son of Cristobal Colon acquired the title of Beast Rey, or entire Spanish operation. It's interesting that the enslaved population and the others that are not enslaved but are participating of this event uh, decided to to attack precisely the highest center of power, right? So this is why this rebellion, Tanyan, is so important. It shows planning. It shows the unity of people that were of different uh, roots, if you wanted to, right? People who were enslaved and people who were not. And somehow, you know, some, sometimes people have said that because Black people who came from Africa and spoke different languages, we were not able to get together because we couldn't communicate. Well, it happened that they were able to communicate in that moment, though they were from different places. And we do have evidence that they came from different places. Actually, you know, uh, later on in 1502, there is this governor, Nicolás de Obando, that Alison had made reference, who wrote to the king and said, well, I, I'd like to receive uh, uh, enslaved people from this particular area and not for that from this area. Because, the, you know, the, the Africans who come from this area, they, they simply don't listen. They don't behave properly. They never learn how to do what they need to do. So I want you to send them from here. So obviously there were different kinds of the Africans that were there, the Black Africans that were there, came from different places. And the point is that they found a way to communicate such a uh, remarkable event, right? And do it not to any master, not to any plantation, but to the plantation, the master, right? I think we need to take all of that into account uh, when, when we look at the uh, significance of this rebellion. Yes, I mean, it's, it's really quite remarkable. Um, it says something about how all human beings yearn to be free. And uh, freedom is liberation, as Allison has pointed out over and over again, this Tiffany King uh, discourse and deconstruction. I mean, I have not heard anything in public discourse. I'm talking about mainstream now. I'm not talking about within communities. And I'm sorry I didn't know about this Columbus statue in Boston with Black Lives Matter, you know, I hope it was spray painted on the on the base, the foundation of the statue, because there would seem to be there was like a public discourse across solidarities that there would be a lot of support between Black and Latino communities, depending on which ones, because there are many different subset of Latino communities in this country to really oppose the public expression of Columbus, the exalted public expression. And so that to me is just incredible. As you both say, 1502, all the way into this contemporary history right now in America that has been animated by protests and demands for equality and freedom and liberation. I, I just want to say that. So in that vein, it becomes really 
obvious to me, your scholarship is so, so important. I think it's a, a big chunk of missing from people, some people who are very quite educated and just don't know this history. And how can you shape this history into public discourse? I mean, we're doing it here on this podcast and you're doing the Medium page. And I want to give credit to Dr. Hernandez for her leadership, her academic scholarship leadership in hosting this national conference last December on this rebellion itself. When I read about the participants list, you know, it was people from the Ivies, but publics from all over the country, just incredible gathering and convening authority that you brought together, Dr. Hernandez. Thank you. Thank you for, for mentioning this. We were uh, pleasantly surprised when we uh, put out the uh, call for paper and then received such an enormous amount of uh, people who wanted to participate. We did two days, and, and this is the, uh, the first time, I think, in the history of the Institute that we have to tell people, uh, we apologize, but we cannot accommodate your paper. And, you know, with the promise that they can present uh, forecoming Dominican Studies Association conference that is coming uh, next year. There were so many people who wanted to, uh, to participate in this. It was a pleasant surprise. This is a very specialized theme, and, and we ask people to focus and concentrate on the repercussion and the ramification of the 1521 rebellion, and the response was overwhelming. 1,270 people raised them. We, That's really, really commendable. Yes, this is, yeah, this was the first time, you know, I think credit has to be given to, to the people who earned that credit. And, and Allison, I mean, having young researchers, new scholars, right, that are embracing this history and going out and speaking and uh, disturbing the peace, right? And questioning and, and adding. I think that this is what really made uh, the difference here. Because we have been talking about this uh, for a long time. The, the Dominican Studies Institute has the largest number of historical records pertaining to the 16th century in the U.S. And we are there for a long time. It's still I think it's, uh, I'm, we are grateful and indebted to uh, the young scholars and, and Alison Guess is, is obviously the, the key to us for all kinds of reasons. And one of those reasons is also that she's African-American and that connection that was needed between this world and that world, mm -hmm. is that bridge. Scholars like her are this bridge that was needed, right, to connect the history of a people that had been resisting oppression since day one. If you ask me, what is it that you wanted to do, uh, Ramona, that my son know, for instance, who was born and raised here, that his resistance to his oppression didn't begin two days ago, but it began exactly the minute that his ancestors were brought here with their hands on the back. And that only began there, not here. This country began a hundred something years after this history uh, was already, you know, there. Scholars like Allison that, you know, are able and capable of maneuvering both uh, worlds, right? I think it's, it, it, it's key. Allison, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that I began to 
interrogate the history of people of African descent um, in this part of the world through, you know, Latin American and Caribbean studies. That's where I got my undergraduate concentration was in Latin American studies. That's kind of the way in which like my curiosity was invigorated. And I think the onus is on us to really look at these earlier histories um, because, you know, in comparison to places in the Caribbean and in the Atlantic world more broadly, the United States is fairly new, right? So I think if we want to understand our history, I often think that, you know, it is about the argumentation of the past that we understand the future, right? So I think that it's important that we're looking at those deeper histories. I'm really encouraged by scholars who are really taking up Black studies and early modern studies. I think that's absolutely crucial. I think we need more of it. And I hope that, you know, some of the research that's coming out of the CUNY Dominican Studies Institute can really be, um, you know, kind of a, a spark in many people's imagination, because I, I think the work is phenomenal. And I'm, I'm really um, have been supported and encouraged by it. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for their support. That's wonderful. And I, I have to say that, you know, I've been at the Graduate Center for nine years, and I have never seen an event publicized by the chancellor in CUNY Central, as much as as your conference was promoted, I congratulate you, Dr. Hernandez, for your leadership, for your scholarship. And Allison, it's very clear you have a trajectory. You've been honored by a Mellon Foundation Fellowship, and your work is very, very interesting. And it's new in my view. What do I know? I, I do human rights. You know, I teach human rights. But I have to say, as an American who grew up during the 60s here in the United States and having experienced what happened during the racial equality, civil rights movement, personally, along with second wave feminism and LGBT This knowledge, this scholarship is very important at this moment in America. I urge both of you and your colleagues to get out there and tell the stories. Tell the stories. I want to congratulate you. I also want to thank you for coming on to the Thought Project, in particular, as we begin to enter Black History Month. This is an important story for every month of every day of the year. Do you have anything else you'd like to add, Dr. Hernandez? Yes, I emphasize what you just uh, said before, the importance of the kind of work that Allison is, is doing. Speaking about this uh, rebellion and, and what happened uh, in the rest of the Americas is important because it brings people together. You know, the kind of unity that we have been talking about that is necessary for us to actually achieve that liberation. We need to bring together. We need to come together. So this is, I think, part of the evidence that we, we need that we do have, that we have done it before and that we have begun together. So there's no reason why we cannot uh, do it. That liberation cannot happen only in one place and not the other. Uh, we, we know that. We, we've seen this, right? So the kind of work that we are doing and the kind of work that Allison is doing, I think it, it's key for bringing us together. Thank you. Allison. Yeah, um, just to uh, piggyback on what Dr. Hernandez just said about this work, bringing so many people together. um, I don't want to end this podcast or this conversation with us not also acknowledging that, 
you know, the 1521 rebellion and rebel activity on the island in this early period is also often bound up with Native struggles for liberation in this land. And I think one of the things that we saw, you know, in many of the protests of 2020 was not just um, Black people who were out in the streets, you know, talking about liberation, but we also saw a lot of our Native Indigenous comrades who were also out there in the streets who've been fighting also since the moment the Europeans showed up at their door. So I think that that's something that I want to make sure that our listeners are left with, that we're also talking about a combined struggle of Black and Indigenous liberators who are venturing out here to free this land and risking their lives for the liberation of everyone on the planet. Thank you both. Thanks for tuning into The Thought Project, and thanks to our guests, Dr. Allison Guess, a Graduate Center alumna and professor of Africana Studies at Williams College and an Andrew Mellon Foundation postdoctoral fellow, and Ramona Hernandez, Professor of Sociology at City College and the CUNY Graduate Center. The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Kevin Wolf of CUNY TV. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.